0: And you might have another few more days, you might have another few more years before you are find out, but you will be found out. But ultimately, God's promises will prevail that God has a plan for His people. And if deliverance doesn't come from you, it'll come from another place. Because our God is a God of the impossible, that our God is a God who has this figure out, and I'm trusting in that. And so Esther, now would you step into the purposes that God has for you right now? And she says, her famous line at the end of chapter 4, If I perish, I perish. She makes a decision. A decision to fall after God's purpose for her life. Everybody in in this room made decisions this morning. You you decided how you were going to get to church. You decided last night what time you were going to wake up. I did. I said, Alexa, wake me up at 6 a.m. And she did. Your alarm is set for 6 a.m. And I woke up when Alexa told me to. I made that decision last night, got up this morning. I didn't even hit the snooze button. That's the other thing about Alexa. There's no snooze button. I guess you can maybe tell her to snooze, but I don't know. Any case, there's decisions that we make each and every day. But, but those, those smaller decisions are, are decisions that, that, that we make at, in relation to the bigger ones. Meaning that if you make a decision to lose twenty pounds, it's not really a decision. If you ate an ice cream sundae filled with fudge last night, it's not really a decision that you made. It was kind of sentimentality. It was wishful thinking, wasn't it? it? Wasn't a decision. So Esther made the decision: If I perish, I perish. When she made this decision, it was a decision to walk through with that decision. It was a decision to carry out the decision that she made. And so she stands before the King in light of seeing that decision through. If I perish, I perish. If it costs me my life. Do you see that as Christians, we have made a decision that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that He is worthy of all worship? And, and every decision that we make in our life is a decision that c- should come from that decision. You see, we could get caught up in sentimentality. We can get caught up in emotionalism. We can get caught up in the moment and think, man, this falling after Christ looks like a good thing today, but it, but it becomes old school later on. And if that was the case, then the decision that we made isn't really a decision, is it? It's kind of a wishful thinking or sentimentality. But but really, what marks a true Christian is that we faithfully follow. We faithfully follow after God. But there's questions in our lives, aren't they? What could happen? you got to think that Esther might have thought, what could happen? Will my... Life be taken from me while I lose my place of prominence in the king's court. Will I lose my, my livelihood. Maybe she had children and she thought about her children. All of those things must have flooded through her mind. Just like all of those things flood after our mind when, when we make a decision to follow after Christ. When I was early on in, in my walk with God as a Christian, this was about 16 years ago, I made a decision to follow after God's call for my life in ministry as a pastor. I had felt when I came to know Christ, it was Colossians 1.15 that had so radically reoriented my life to the glory of God. It, the passage says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things He might be preeminent, or supreme, For God was pleased that all his fullness should dwell in him and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I read that verse and it brought me to my knees and I said, God, I belong to you. I'm yours. Use me for your glory. It was a decision that, that, that God had put in my heart and decision that I had chose to follow after him. And there's a verse in there. He's the head of the body of the church. I had no idea what that meant. It means that Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. But as I began to study it, I, I realized that he also calls men to be pastors as under shepherds of him. And he called me towards that. And I was going to college at UCF for an electrical engineering degree. My dad's an electrical engineer. And I was following in my dad's footsteps, even though I wasn't very good at math. Um, which may have had a little bit of something to do with this, but not entirely completely. But I, I made a, a decision to follow after God. And that meant that I would have to make a decision that would not be in line with my dad's approval. Because my dad wanted me to be a part of the family business. That I would be a part of that with him. And so I remember calling my dad up. And now I, I, I didn't tell him when I called him on the phone. That wouldn't really be the wise thing to do. I had to, I had to soften him up a bit, right? And so I'd, I, I said, Dad, l- let's go golfing. Uh, that was, that's his love language. Even today, you, you go golfing with dad, you score some real brownie points with him. You can, there's a lot of grace on the golf course. There's a lot of grace, especially if you let him win. And I did, I let him win. Um, and so we, we were golfing and, and, uh, there, there is really, you know, if, if you've played golf, there is really something to it. Um, even if you're playing bad and you got good company, it's a good day. And so, uh, in the conversation, I, I I had worked myself up to this point, and And I think I was, like, nervously having jitters. And, you know, as I'm putting, like, it's like I just shank it completely to the left. And it, like, goes down into the sand trap. And, and so I'm nervous about it. But, but then I say to my dad, when the time was right, Dad, I, God's been doing this work in my life. And he's, he's seen that. He's seen this work that God's doing in my life. And I said, Dad, I, I believe God... It's called me into ministry. And I believe I'm to be a pastor. And I I just simply asked him, I said, what do you think about that? My dad looked at me back with all the love in his eyes he could muster. And he said, Ryan, you're going to be a great pastor. And it melted my heart. It confirmed with me the assurance that God had for me. And I trusted that God was at work. Now, It was just the beginning. It's not like you go from point A to point Z. And and, and every decision that I've made in my life has had to be decisions that say, I'm a child of God, but I'm also an under-shepherd of His church. And so every decision that I make, even in life today, have to do with pastoring my family, pastoring you. Decisions that didn't stop there. In fact, that was the beginning of many more decisions that would be made. Decisions that still today the story's not written. There could be hard days ahead. There could be easy days ahead. I I don't know. But I'm trusting and I'm falling after God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Right? You ever been there? I could tell you right now. God has His best for you, and you'd agree with me. But in the back of your mind, as God calls you to difficult things, you wonder, how painful will it be? What will it cost me? That was what was going through Esther's mind. What will it cost me? Esther, she came before the king. She made a choice. You can see that there's this dependence that it produced. Because in Esther chapter 4, we see that she called the, the, the Jewish people to fast. Probably one of the spiritual hints that we receive in the scripture, that there's this work of God that he was producing in Esther's life and the people. Because remember, there's no mention of God or prayer in this book, but here you have fasting. And everywhere you see fasting in the scriptures, you see that this fasting is producing a dependence upon God. That I am going to forgo food in order so that those hunger pains might remind me that I need God to fill me. She She was telling the Jewish people, fast, pray for me. I'm going before the king. This is completely out of my control. Even though she made a decision, she knew the decision wasn't ultimately her. She had to depend on God for that decision. That's where you and I are at in this life today. You made a decision for a business. You made a decision for a family. You made a decision for a career. You made a decision for these things, but really, ultimately, it's not in your control. And so, a proper place is to be prostrate on your knees before God in prayer, reminding yourself that this whole thing doesn't rest on you. That's where Esther was. It's so where we're at today. It's a very similar position. And we are reliant upon God for that. Just as Gina is in need of healing, we are reminded that we're all in need of healing. We're reminded that we all need God's touch. And that anything could happen to us at any time, in any place, and ultimately it's out of our control. And so our response is to say, God, you're in control and I'm not. I'm dependent upon you. And that even though the worst might happen, I'm going to walk through this because I know that you're with me. That's the dependence that God put upon Esther. You see that there's this also this meekness about her that was there. She put on her royal robes and she went before the king. She came as Queen Esther even though she was a child of God, stepping into her identity as a child of God, she, she put on her royal robes in meekness and subtlety before the king. Now, now, you can imagine when she's entering into the palace, and she's entering into the king's court, that would have been an unfamiliar face in that place. The king would have known she was placing her life In his hands. The king would have known. Something was important there. There, There's a shift. That we begin to see in Esther here. The shift is what. Author Karen Job says. Esther assumes the dignity. And power. Only after she claims. Her true identity. As a woman of God. Do you see that. The decision. That wasn't necessarily as much. Of what she would do. But who she was. That her decision was in light of who God made her to be. That that she realized like. I'm a child of God. And I'm called to walk in accordance with his purpose. You're children of God and, and, and that is the defining thing about our lives. That's the defining reality above all realities. And, and, and that's the thing that should shape everything about our lives so that we're not given to, to find people's approval more valuable than, than what it means to be approved as God's child. That we're given first to This wondrous beauty of who God has made us to be. And we say that's the most valuable thing. And that's the decision that Esther made. Was to walk in the dignity and value that God has made her as his child. And it produced this meekness before her. She didn't go into the king's court demanding that he give her an audience. She didn't do that. No, she subtly walked in. The king noticed her. And we see that he held out his scepter towards her. (sighs) She didn't die, guys. The cliffhanger is resolved there. She didn't die right away. She touched the king's scepter. That was another display of his leadership. But the irony is here is that who was really in control of things? Well, actually, Esther was the one that was in control. Because after this, she had the king, the most powerful man in the known world at that time, and the prime minister, Haman, at her beck and call. She wooed them to her. And then we next see what the king says to Esther. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? And what is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom." and Esther she has them right where she wants them but Esther responds with this delay and Esther said if it please the king let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king so there's this you would expect Esther to come and, and, and to plead her case before the king in this royal palace where the king has promised her anything that she wants. Now, by the way, when the king would say that he would give you anything up to half of his kingdom, it, it was an idiom, it, was a, it, w- it wasn't a statement of fact, it was just saying that the king is feeling rather generous towards you. And so when the king said that, it was feeling rather generous towards Esther that she had his heart but Esther was not satisfied in that. Esther is a smart, brilliant politician as well. She actually believed that, I believe that the delay was not because Esther was afraid. I believe that it wasn't because Esther wasn't sure of herself. I believe that it wasn't because she was having second thoughts. I believe that she intentionally planned this in order to change the environment. Because the stuffiness of the king's palace was no place to make this request to her husband, the king. She needed to woo him over. She needed to let him win a game of golf, essentially. And so she knows the way to her husband's heart. It's through his belly. She throws him a feast. And she says, bring Haman. And now the king is interested in this. And so the king says, bring Haman quickly and we'll go to your feast, Esther. I think what we see here is this confidence in God that's produced in Esther as a result of her identity as a child of God. That there's this confidence in God that's produced as a result of God's plan upon her life. There was no assurances that she had been given from God. There's no miracles that you find here in in the book of Esther. You see, no truly supernatural working power. There is no word from God that, 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 that when Esther was in prayer, that somehow she received that we read of here. No, she was simply going in light of a confidence that God was going to work no matter what. Do you have that confidence in your life? Do you have that confidence in your life that when you live for his purpose, that God is going to work no matter what? When you're not given assurances of what tomorrow brings, when you're not given assurances of what is coming your way, do you have that confidence? Right now, we're living in a story in which God is at work. Right now, we're living in a story in which God has called us to be a part of his purpose and maybe you just hear when you pray to God, you just hear silence and you wonder. Maybe you want a visible hand of God to show you the direction, but you don't see anything. But there's a confidence that God gives us to say that because we are His, He's going to work regardless. Even if the outcome Listen, even if the outcome looks glum, He's going to work. How do I know that? Well, I know that through looking at Christ on the cross. Jesus is in the garden praying in Gethsemane. and He says, Lord, if it be... Lord, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. That I wouldn't have to carry this burden. That I wouldn't have to carry the cross. Is there any other way, Lord? But with confidence, Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, with sweat that dropped like blood, as blood, He said, not my will, Lord, but Your will be done. He walked in confidence that even unto death, God's plan would be carried out. Even unto death, God's plan would be carried out. And this is what Esther is trusting in. She continues the delay. At night, when the king is filled with wine and drink, you would think that now is the time, Esther, to tell the king and to ask this request. And she says, when the king says, what is your request, Esther? She says, I'm going to have another party tomorrow. You're invited. Please bring Haman. And tomorrow, I'll tell you what you're wanting to know. And so the king, again, is given to Esther. And then we see this transition take place where a delusion falls over Haman. Remember, Haman is the one who wants Mordecai killed. Haman is the one whose pride so vastly burns because he wasn't given the due respect he deserved from Haman. From Mordecai, that he wants to kill all the Jewish people. And if you look with me at verse 9, it says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. So he was feeling good. He's got a pep in his step. He's leaving the king's palace. He goes to the king's gate. And then there's Mordecai. And everyone else is bowing down before him, the prime minister, the one whose heart is full of gladness. But Mordecai is there with his arms crossed. I'm not going to do it. And Haman's heart begins to burn with a murderous anger. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against mordecai nevertheless haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife zerish so haman's anger had burned so much that he had to call together some people to vent to today we actually call that facebook right you you, you, you can you can just call them up uh, you can you can put all of your stuff, and somebody there will will agree with you about it. Somebody there, even no matter how wrong you will be, will say that you're right, right? There's a real danger in that when we surround ourselves with those type of people, people who don't know us well enough in order to, or love us enough in order to rebuke us or challenge us. This is what Haman did. He, He surrounded himself with these people. And these people affirmed him in his anger. Yeah, you need to do something about Mordecai. How could you let him? And so he, he's, got this, he's got this speech that's making him feel better. He says, he says about himself, he's, he, he, he's talking about his wealth. These are the things that the Persian empire valued, was wealth, sons, and your place before the king. How much money you got, how many, how many sons you have, how far your lineage will, be, will be able to travel because of your heritage. You were blessed if you had sons. And then thirdly, it was your place before the king. How close were you towards the king? All of those things were going pretty well for him. Even his wife agreed. He was telling his wife how many sons he had. And she didn't look at him and say, I should know how many sons you had. I bore them all. <laughs> that didn't happen. It was it was it was her uh, uh, getting into his anger and bitterness, and you see that it's actually his wife Sarah who says, I-, "I got a plan. Why don't we just build this big stake? We'll nail Mordecai to him to it, and we'll stick it through his chest, so that way Mordecai gets." what he deserves because he did not honor you and you see that actually the plan sounds pretty good to Haman there oh yeah let's build the gallows the gallows by the way was not something that we know as gallows today where someone was hanged in those days it was actually a stake that was erected where someone would be visibly killed on it almost like a crucifix and so the plan was at nightfall To have this stake be built. And in the morning. Have Mordecai. Killed on it. And in the evening. You can go to the party. With a clear conscience. That's what the plan was for Haman. But stubborn. Stubborn Haman. Didn't realize. That he would be used for God's purpose. As well. Do you see this that. At the end of the story, it's not Mordecai that's on the stake, but Haman. I hate, I hate to tell you if you haven't been reading ahead, but that's what happens. There's a reversal that takes place to where the folly of Haman is made visible for all to see that if you foolishly seek to go away from God and your pride makes you God above others and your idolatry begins to burn in you anger that is against God and against God's people, you'll be used for God's purposes as an instrument of God's wrath. And that's what happened with Haman. Ray Steadman says this about our pride. The kindest thing God can do is to deflate our pride even at the expense of our possessions and reputation. I read that to you because I think it's important that we read this case study on Haman and we see how has my pride blinded me? How has my pride blinded me of my sinfulness towards God? I think it's really important because here's the result of this that happens. If you are not brought to an awareness of your pride and sinfulness towards God, At the end of the day, the king who sits on the throne, who is ruling, he will not receive you. You see that there is a king on the throne that's not Xerxes. And the king on the throne stands at the throne, or sits on the throne today, while we live and have breath. And he warns us so lovingly against our pride, in order to tell us that he gives us grace. When we come to repentance. James 4.6 says that God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. That we see that we have declared ourselves as enemies against God. Because of our sin. And that that sin is a rebellion against God. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our high priest. Who is in heaven and at his throne. He gives mercy and grace to those in their time of need. And that right now there's a work that God seeks to do to crush our pride and to call us towards His mercy. And that the King who's on the throne extends His scepter to you. And the only thing you have to do is come. Come. That's the meekness and humility that God is calling for His church today. It's not that, that we would bow the knee to King Xerxes. It's that we would bow the knee to King Jesus. And here's the thing, friends. If you don't bow the king to G- King the knee to King Jesus on this side of eternity, you will bow it on the next side of eternity. But if you bow it on the next side of eternity, without acknowledging Jesus as Lord right now, that scepter is not offered out to you as a scepter of mercy, but that scepter is brought upon you in the wrath of God to where you will suffer a fate like Haman. A fate that God's wrath bears upon because you rejected God's mercy and grace. Right now, friends, is a time that we can acknowledge our need of God's grace. Because if we would humble ourselves, God makes us recipients of His mercy. By showing us just how much we need Him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus is on the stake. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You know, pride makes us idiots. It makes us stupid. But grace, grace makes us vessels of God's incredible mercy. Grace purchases us from pridefulness and arrogance and it brings us into this kingdom of righteousness where we can be like Esther where we can be used as God's vessels Esther wasn't perfect in this there, there was not any sinlessness in Esther we don't hold her up as this incredible heroine of the faith even though she is there, There's, there's not perfection in her she was a troubled young woman living in a troubled world at a troubled time. But God broke her and brought her to His knees, to her, her knees, to where she would say, "God, I want to be used for Your plan and purpose." That's where we're at today, friends. That 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 we, in the midst of our brokenness, would come before that throne, and we would behold the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And that we would trust in Him. That we would believe in Him. And that we would walk in Him. That no matter, like C.S. Lewis says, no matter what God's will is, and knowing God wants good for us, no matter how hard it may be, we're going to walk in it. Because we know He's given us grace. He's given us grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. That's what we need today. Grace upon grace. Your track record doesn't have to be perfect to receive it. In fact, the only requirement is that you would acknowledge your need for Christ. That's what communion is. When we take communion, we receive the Lord's scepter of righteousness. This is my body broken for you. When we take of the cup, this is my blood spilled out, poured out. Do you see the king doesn't sit on the throne, but he assumes the position on the cross? That he takes the stake for us? That he's put on the gallows for us? That he was broken for us? That it was us that were among the crowd shouting crucify him? And that he he forgave that pridefulness in us? While pride makes us idiots, grace makes us loved and makes us the righteousness of God. And so we receive that communion with glad and sincere and generous hearts, praising God through his wonderful gift in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that your gift of mercy is always and forever. And that, God, even today, many of us have made a decision to, to love you, to trust you, to worship you. But we've strayed from that decision, Lord. God, where we've strayed for that, from that decision, Lord, I pray that you bring us back. And even now, Lord, you, you offer your scepter of grace to us. Mercy and help in that time of need. And we worship you. In Christ's name, the church says, amen.